As you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1166. One thousand one hundred and sixty-six Philippians chapter four. If you are joining us here for the first time this morning, we are going through in our series of Advent the gifts that God gives to us, and we've been exploring some of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, not fruits. We don't get to pick and choose which of the love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control that we get to have. We don't get to leave those on the table. But all of these things are meant in some measure to be in our lives. And today, we are going to be taking a look at joy, which is our focus this morning. I have just one verse that we're going to be reading, but it's going to point us to many more. So please keep your Bibles with you as we're going to be taking a look at a few different passages this morning. So again, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our service this morning. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage that we have before us, this command that we have before our lives, the command to be joyful. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us what you command, as has been said And pray that this would be an encouragement to us, a promise made in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy is a serious issue. We too quickly give up on experiencing it, figuring that life is just too hard and that joy is simply impossible. Joy is for children and responsibility and dourness is what the fate lies for the rest of us. But that's not true. In fact, I think the reason why we give up on it, especially if it's been a while since circumstances have been favorable, is because we believe that joy is optional in the Christian life. Joy is not optional in the Christian life. It is a command. In fact, if we are not joyful... We are in sin. Now, how can I say something that strongly? Because the Bible says something that strongly. And I'm hoping that as we look through this, we can see where I'm coming from. The point of this is not to lay on a burden onto your soul of saying, oh, we already have so many things to do, and now you're saying I have to be happy about it all the time? That's not what we're saying. That's not the burden I'm trying to lay onto your soul. What I'm trying to put onto your soul this morning is to give you permission to seek joy and to hold out the promise that you can find it, that I'm not sending you out on a fool's errand, but I'm sending you for something that God wants you to have, indeed commands you to have. So that's what we're going to look at today. But the first thing we need to do is define what joy is. Too often we find biblical commands too hard because we've ill-defined what they are. Joy is not just another word for lack of sadness. 
Joy is not the same thing as happiness, which comes and goes with circumstances. How can I say this? Well, we know that Jesus obeyed God in everything that he was supposed to do, because he was God. Filled out his Father's will perfectly, and Jesus was sad. The most famous passage in all the Bible was Jesus wept before the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus. He also wept again when he saw Jerusalem and was saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together. And we see it again with drops of sweat beating his forehead in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. Indeed, Isaiah predicted of Jesus that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So sadness is not alien to joy. Jesus was obedient to God's command to rejoice always, even in the midst of his sorrow. So joy is not just another word for lack of sadness. Joy is not another word for happiness. So what is it? We're going to see, and again, this is a useful thing to notice how I'm going about this, because this is how you can study the Bible and what these things mean. I'm going to give you a definition for what joy is. And then I hope as we go along through the passages that we're going to see, that you'll see how I've come to this understanding. And I have placed that definition before you on your outline, which is on the back of your prayer guide inserted into the bulletin. I have just one point here for us today. If you hear nothing else, you can take this one home. This is the summary, this is the summary of my message. It says, joy is happily self-forgetful worship of the transcendent Christ. That's a lot of long words there, but it's hard to pull things down into a 12-point font that'll fit on that little page. So we're going to explain what I mean by that, that joy is happily self-forgetful worship of the transcendent Christ. So this is the answer to how it is that we rejoice, have joy in all circumstances. It's by keeping a close eye on what Jesus has done and is doing for us. My old seminary dean, Timothy George, had put it this way. He says, Christian joy is marked by celebration and expectation of God's ultimate victory over the powers of sin and darkness, a victory actualized already in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is the key to our joy is remembering what Jesus has done, coming to earth, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and rose again, defeating our ultimate enemy, which is death. That's the celebration part. And then the expectation part is that Jesus' work is still continuing. He's defeated the spiritual power of sin, And then one day he's going to come back and remove all of the presence of sin as well. It's by keeping these things in mind is the key to our joy. But we're going to see how this unfolds. This says the Christian joy constantly keeps the cross, resurrection, and renewal of the whole earth in mind. So, let's begin with what I said earlier, that this joy is a command. We see here in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, when, he says, when Paul says, rejoice 
in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul is not suggesting something here. This is where grammar is important, students. This is in the imperative, which means it's a command. The word is structured in such a way as this is for sure. He's telling us something to do. It says to rejoice always. And again, I will say rejoice. And it's not like Paul just got a wild hair here, got a little overzealous and wrote this in just here. The exact same command shows up again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, rejoice always. Now, if we're going to be honest here, if we think about things, we don't think enough as Christians. We're afraid to. I think we'll, because we're, we're afraid we might undo something. But the Bible can hold up to scrutiny. Is Paul being unfeeling here? Rejoice always. Does he not know how hard people's lives are? Is he really saying this as an imperative? He is. I'm not the only one to see this. There's another pastor who, in looking at this verse, put it this way. He said, unsaved people do not rejoice in God, pray to God, or give thanks to God. Religious people rejoice sometimes, pray when they feel like it, and give thanks when things are going well. But Christians rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. This is not the believer's response because we are impervious to life's dangers, toils, and snares. It is our response to life because we are in Christ Jesus. Ooh. But he's right. All those things that he is saying, those aren't his interpretations. Those are just other verses from Scripture. But this is a command to do this. And it's not just Paul or Pastor Charles. This is H.B. Charles, by the way, who said that. He's not speaking as someone who is unaware of how hard life can be. Paul wrote that from prison. But we see Jesus has said the same thing. If you turn with me, <coughs> excuse me, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teachings to the world. And here he's listing out the Beatitudes, what the Christian life looks like. And here in verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And here's the command. You hear this? Rejoice and be glad. Let's stop there for now. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying rejoice and be glad when others persecute you because of me. Can you imagine anyone else saying that? Sometimes you can get how shocking Jesus' words are by imagining yourself saying this. Can you imagine if I was to get up here and say, we're going in this direction now, and people are going to hate you because, they're associated, because you're associated with me, but when people throw rocks at you, when they persecute you, when they kick you out of your homes, 
rejoice and be glad because you're, this is happening because you're associated with me. You would think I was narcissistic at best. Delusional might be the better word. So why can Jesus say that? How does Jesus get off telling us that? If you can answer that question, you are well on your way to joy. If you can understand the answer to why Jesus can make such an outrageous claim on your life, you are very close to Christian joy. So what is the answer to that question? The answer to the question is because Jesus is the main character of history. Jesus can say this because all of the world has been leading up to and is responding to Jesus, him, not me or you. We are not the main character. We are not the center of the universe. Jesus is. So when he tells us these things, when we are to rejoice and be glad when we are suffering because of him, it's because we are advancing the agenda of history. We are fulfilling Jesus' God's will for the world. Now, to help us understand that a bit, there is actually, there are a lot of you in here have experienced this in small scale. We can see this when a mother gives birth to a child. I've been in a delivery room a couple of times. I've never born a child, and I never will, despite what our culture tells us. But I can tell you with firm conviction that it is a painful process. And I had never understood why anyone would volunteer for that a second time. I get the first time because you don't know what's coming. You just assume everyone's being a drama about the process. But then you get in there, and yes, screaming is involved. On my part. (laughs) But the reason why someone would be willing to volunteer to do this, not once, not twice, sometimes even more times than that, is because... Mom in that moment doesn't consider herself to be the main character. It's about the child, isn't it? The mother is being very self-forgetful. I don't mean she doesn't remember the pain. She does, and that's the whole point. She isn't thinking it's all about me. The priority in her mind is not herself. It is this child is the reason why we're here. And at the end of this process, there's a new life. And because of this, we can even look at this process with joy. Having just gone through this whole ordeal, there's life and there's joy. Such that it outweighs the pain that she has just gone through. That's in small scale what I'm talking about when it comes to our own self-forgetfulness. It requires us to leave behind our own priorities in favor of someone else. 
and even as significant as a mother's child is to her. This baby is not the center of the universe either. This child is not the main character. This child is one of approximately 400,000 other babies that were born that day across the world. The main character is still Christ. And it's when we prioritize him in the same way that a mother prioritizes her child and will do anything it takes to make sure that that child is safe, even undergoing risky, painful surgery to do so. This is what we're called to in celebrating Christ. Now, how do we do that? How do we forget ourselves when we live in ourselves? I'm always in this body. I always have this face. I always have this brain, thoughts, thinking about myself, voice, thinking about myself. How do we get past this? Well, one is to come to the firm conviction that you're never going to find joy in yourself. It's the biggest lie that culture will ever tell you is you can find joy in yourself as long as you also buy our product. Fascinating, isn't it? You're never going to find it there. And if you want proof of that, just think back on your life. Reflect a little bit. Too much or too distracted by stuff. Sit in a quiet room and think about your life for a while. How secure you thought you would feel once you got to this pay grade. How sure of yourself you'd feel if just when you got married. Or if only you could have children. And how you've, you've come to those stages, you've passed those stages, and you're still seeking something if you haven't found it in Christ. You're never going to find joy in yourself. Because you're sinful. You're never going to find joy in stuff. Because it's fallen. This is the first step to joy, is forgetting yourself. Now, you can't stop there. If all it was was just forgetting yourself, then the Buddha could have gotten you that far. The teachings of Buddhism is that suffering comes from desires. So if you can just get rid of your desires, then you can ascend from this idea of suffering and pain. Now, beyond how one gets rid of desires, which sounds like a desire, if you're desiring to get rid of your desires, is the only desirable desire. <laughs> All that gets you is numbness. God wants more for you than that. God wants more than just unfeeling. He wants joy for you. He's actually very committed to that. Because your joy, as my favorite preacher John Piper has said, is tied to his glory. As his ministry often says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What does that mean? Many of you in this time of shopping are probably scrolling through Amazon reviews. And you will find the product is more desirable the more people have been satisfied with that product and happy about it. It's the same thing with the Lord. 
If the only advertisement that we give for, for, for the Lord is saying like, well, he just gets me through the day. Well, that's not very satisfying, is it? It's like, no, this is the chief joy of my heart. This is the whole purpose of my life. It says it in the very first question of the Westminster Catechism. What's the chief end of man, the main purpose of our existence? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the point. This is what God has for us. He wants you to have joy. But you have to be convinced that it's not you. You've got to get past the few inches of your nose. You have to get to self-forgetfulness. But then you have to worship the transcendent Christ. We've lost our view of transcendence. Something bigger than ourselves. As we look around the world, and the world seems very small now. I can jump on a plane and in 10 hours be on the other side of the planet. I can get on my computer and I can see a live view of the other side of the world. I can log into satellites. We've lost the scale of the world. I mean, the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. But we can see a lot more than that. From as near as we can tell, the universe to go from one side to the other is 93 trillion light years. Or excuse me, 93 billion light years. It travels 6 trillion miles a year. So it's like, by the time you get all these numbers, it doesn't even mean anything anymore. The universe is massive, and God is bigger than that. And then we'll say, nah. Adding God to this circumstance doesn't change anything. What? How can we say that? Just on the sheer size of the guy. Well, maybe you're not impressed by stars and universes, and I get that. Some of you are more relational. He's done that too. When we look at our Lord, this is the one who is measuring the universe with the span of his hand decides to come to our little corner of the universe. We're really small people. And he decides to come down and live as one of us. The jump of scale to that is beyond our comprehension. And decides to live as one of us in a really hard time of living. Is obedient to everything God says, because we couldn't do it. And that's the other thing. He didn't just come and deal with small people. It's just like, oh, look, he's mindful of all parts of his creation. No, we're the one part of creation that didn't do what he says. All those other stars and planets move exactly the way he tells them to move. We're the only ones that look at him and say, no. And instead of just crushing us and sending us away and then delighting in the billions of other galaxies and stars that he's created, he's decided to work with us at great cost to himself. This wasn't just an afternoon tinkering in the garage. This was 33 years of leaving the praises of the angels to go carve out a living for yourself in first century Jerusalem. Backwater Nazareth. Making a table. 
and then going out and proclaiming that I am going to bring peace to the world, set the captives free. He preaches this in his hometown, and they try to throw him off a cliff. And all the rest of his ministry is marked like that. All the while knowing he is on his way to his own execution. You don't think he can't make a difference in your joy? The idea of rejoicing in all circumstances is beyond him? All doing this so that you can have joy in him. It's what he promises. When we don't, we just flat out disagree with Scripture. In Psalm 16, verse 2, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Nothing else in this life matters except you. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the promise that he gives to us. And in fact, Jesus goes on. I, I, I cut Jesus off earlier, if you didn't notice, in Matthew 5, verse 12. Here he's laid out, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for the reason you can rejoice and be glad is because your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Jesus is laying out something for you that's saying this suffering that you're undergoing is worth it. There is something grand coming that the God who made all of that universe and came to earth to live as one of you and died for you is preparing for you. What do you think he is preparing? Well, it's really beyond our comprehension. So all we can do is Say it in other ways. For instance, Paul tells us in Romans 8, no stranger to suffering, by the way. Beaten, shipwrecked, starving, prison. The guy has been through a few things. And yet he describes all the horrors of life and says all of this is a light, momentary affliction. Romans 8. This is a guy who lived in a culture where they nailed people to trees and put them on display so that you could watch them die for a couple days. That's the context. And he is describing that kind of world as light and momentary suffering compared to the glory that is to come. What kind of glory must that be? Or stated positively, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has given his disciples the power to boss around demons, which is pretty cool. The ability to relieve people's sufferings and separate them from spiritual oppression. That's a pretty cool thing. And what does Jesus tell them in Luke chapter 10? He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Going to heaven is something that is so worth rejoicing, the ability to boss around a demon is not even worth talking about. 
how is it that heaven can possibly stand up to that kind of hype? It's because God is there. What makes heaven heaven is not endless food with no caloric consequences or mansions by the sea. It's because God is there. He is the only thing that can bring you joy. Because he's the only thing that's infinite. You ever wondered why we have such longings for stuff? Why it seems like we're designed to constantly consume something? It's because we were designed to consume God for all of eternity. And it's no wonder we can't fill it up with presents and money. It's because we were meant to do this. To be brought into his joy. What does he say? When folks are entered into heaven, enter into the joy of your master. God's joy over you. What must it be like to experience God's joy? We've seen other people be joyful. But what must it be when God celebrates? When God is satisfied in himself so much that it overwhelms him and flows into you. That's heaven, people. That's where we're going. That's joy. That's what he wants to bring you. Even now, knowing that's coming, we can rejoice in all circumstances. So how does that work? Maybe you say, you know what? My heart's not even moved by that. And I get it. There were times this week I was preparing this sermon. What happens when even those things don't move you? Well, there's a third step to joy. First was self-forgetfulness. You've got to get past yourself. Second thing, you've got to have a view of Jesus. And third, you have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Joy is a command. And you can disobey that command just like all the other commands. You need Jesus' help in order to be honest. You need Jesus' help to be content. You need Jesus' help to worship him. And you need Jesus' help to be joyful. So you have to ask him for it. Your soul is filled with sin and continues to claw at your heart and to do whatever it takes to distract you away from that. And you've got to ask for his help. Now, maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you say, I, this is foreign to me. I've seen happiness, but not like what you're describing. Maybe it's because you've never come to Jesus. Maybe you've never put your trust in him. Turning from yourself and to him. Leaving your sins behind. Repenting and turning to Christ. Maybe you've never done that. If you haven't, now's the time. This isn't just, well, I want to get to heaven someday or I want to avoid hell. This God offers you joy in the present. You can begin to experience that even now. But you've got to come to him. There's no joy without surrender. There's no joy without Jesus. Submit. Come to him. 
And then you will find joy. Or if you say, well, pastor, I have done that. I have come to Christ. But I got to tell you, I'm at a real low point right now. Are you making use of the means that he gives to you? The Lord is kind enough that when you wander away from the source of joy, he's going to pull the plug. He's going to sound some alarm bells and draw you back to him. Not because he's mean and toxic and needs you. No, it's because he loves you and there's only going to be found joy here. And sometimes you've got to fight for it. So what does this mean for Monday? When you wake up and joy's not there. Or when there's so many other things clamoring at you. On the way here, we're going to be taking a, a little family trip to go visit someone a ways from here. So we had the kids bring some more toys with them. And every Sunday, my wife prays for me as we pull up to the church. And I had two different children's songs going on behind me on our way up here. And there would be, would hear my wife pouring out her heart to the Lord and hearing the ABCs at the same time. And my ear kept being pulled back to the ABCs and whatever else was going on back there and would miss the prayer that was happening for me right now. That's a lot like what the world is. There is blasting things at you, anything to get your attention. And all the while, Jesus is right here is praying for you. Are you listening? Sometimes it requires a lot of focus. Joy is not an automatic thing. The more we shut him out, the less we'll have it. So fight for it. You can have it. Joy is possible. Even in the most impossible of circumstances. Because it's not... Happiness, so much more, so much more. It's worship. It's trust in Christ. And that lays the foundation to where even in the midst of sadness, you know, he holds you. He holds the future. You know, one thing that teaches us that extremely well is kids. Kids at Christmas time, might not be the most patient of people. But boy, can those kids believe when you tell them something. When you say you've gotten their Christmas list, they assume everything that is on that list is coming for them. Because they've seen you provide for them in the past. And whatever you tell them, they believe so much that we have to warn them about disappointment. We have to try to set expectations like, now, hey, now, you know, just because you put it on the list doesn't mean we have to shield them from their excess joy. We've been promised a lot more than presents under the tree. And Jesus is way more faithful than you are. He is going to fulfill what he's promised to you. So you believe him when he tells you that there are pleasures in my right hand, that I tell you these things so that you may have joy. Trust him like a child. Be dependent on him like a child. And you will find 
joy. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this promise, promise you give to us of joy. And I pray that if there are those here today who are seeking it in something else, who are looking to quick fixes for their heart's desires, that they would be convinced, not by what I've said, but by what you put into their hearts. I pray that your spirit would apply these things that you've told them, told me, and that we would look to you and you alone for our joy. Help refocus us if we've lost our way. Point us to yourself if we've never found you in the first place. And let all that we do be done knowing what you've promised to us that we might have joy. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.